Hello and welcome to ReFi Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks to Roger Krulak, founder and CEO of Full Stack Modular, about his experiences in the modular construction business, how he sees it impacting the future built environment, and opportunities for real estate investors within the modular space. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine, and I'm here on Zoom with Roger Krulak of Full Stack Modular. For decades, construction has lagged other sectors in productivity growth, and the digital age has transformed just about every industry from media to medicine. But many real estate and construction processes still look roughly the same as they did in the 1950s. A heavy reliance on manual human labor, numerous contractors and trades that are not coordinated, and disparate supply chains with expensive middlemen. Over the last several years, there have been increasing efforts to bring construction into the modern age by moving, for example, assembly operations off-site to more of a factory setting with the idea that it would improve product quality and delivery times while also reducing waste. Well, we're happy to have Roger on the show today to discuss how modular construction might be part of the solution. Welcome, Roger. It's good to have you. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Roger, you've been in construction and development for 25 years, including 14 years at Forest City Ratner where in 2008, you spearheaded the first R&D project for modular construction. In 2014, uh, you received the Popular Mechanics Breakthrough Award, that sounds so cool, by the way, uh, for your work on the creation of a high-rise modular process. And this led to the founding of Full Stack Modular, which you spun out from Forest City as an independent company in 2016. Um, and then you started the construction of 461 Dean Street in Brooklyn which is a 32-story, 363-unit multifamily building um, and the tallest modular construction project in the world. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that later. Let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about you. You know, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into the construction industry? What's your story? Yeah, well, I, um, I grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, in a, in a family of developers uh, and contractors. My grandfather, I should say my great-grandfather uh, was a carpenter uh, who immigrated from Russia. He was dying to move back to Russia for most of his life. And, uh, and uh, in my grandfather's early age, he uh, actually went back to, to Russia to teach carpentry uh, with St one of Stalin's five-year programs and then quickly got sent back. Uh, so anyway, uh, lots of carpenters in my family, uh, tradesmen, and also executives in development companies. Uh, and the thing that I that I say all the time, uh, a picture of my great grandpa Joseph sits behind my desk, and uh, and I say that if he was on a construction site today, he would be completely comfortable, even though he's been uh, <laughs> dead for seventy five years. So. That is a crazy crazy image. For, um, where in Cleveland did you grow up? I grew up in on the east side of Cleveland. So on the east Shaker side, Heights, yeah. Beachwood, I'm, yeah. I'm a Case Western kid. Oh, so got I spend it. time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great place. So I've spent my life in the, in construction and development, um, and uh, have always been frustrated by anything inefficient, waiting in line, traffic to the Hamptons, having to wait 
to get your COVID test results. Uh, and I feel <laughs> the same way about construction. And I have always uh, endeavored to try and find ways to solve um, uh, frustrating problems. In addition to that, my grandfather actually was involved in a modular housing initiative during Project Breakthrough in the 1970s where um, the government sponsored um, concrete modular um, assisted living facilities um, all over the country. There were, uh, I think, 70 to 80,000 of them built, most of them still standing. And so they built, um, they built concrete modular eight-story buildings all over all over the Midwest. Uh, and, uh, and so I've sort of had modular in my mind for a long time. So if modular existed 50 years ago, what, how, how is it different today? What does modular mean? <laughs> um, I, think, I, I think that question is, uh, is multifaceted. I think the question is, is what has happened to the AEC industry over the last 50 years and how is it run? Um, I think if you look back at um, construction drawings done by architects in the 50s, and if you looked at them today, obviously there's a lot more materiality, there's obviously a lot more complexity, but the, the level of details um, because of the process of our ACE industry has diminished uh, on the outset and then increases in complexity as the building gets created. I'm not gonna go into why, that has given rise to sort of the need to rethink the process. And the industry is ripe for that. The lack of, you know, you mentioned the lack of skilled labor, but in addition to that, the lack of ability to predict cost and time of, of, of creating the built environment um, is driven by, you know, sort of a process that we have created, this design bid build process, um, which is incredibly inefficient and honestly doesn't generally yield better pricing um, is, is, is in need of shifting regardless of whether you're using modular or offsite built to do it. And that's sort of the state oh, I think the industry's in. For those of us who don't live and breathe this as you do every day, let's stop a minute and think about design, bid, build. So yeah. the concept here is you have an architect who designs a building uh, along with a developer who agrees that it's that it's financeable um, and worth building. And then they bid it out to contractors and then, you know, build it in some sort of, you know, uh, Django yeah. <laughs> process of, of buying the supplies mm -hmm. and bringing the different subcontractors in. Is that, is that the way it is all over the world? And, and who, who does that, you know, what else, who does that serve? Because if you think about it, yeah. I think about, the taxi industry. Nobody was going to disrupt the, the yellow cabs were never going to disrupt the taxi industry because it was right. great for them. And it right. took, you know, the, someone who had a technology to come in and disrupt it. Yeah. Who's who's served by design bid build and why does it make sense and who's really served by disrupting it? Well, I think I, I think the answer is not simple, but it's actually pretty complex. But let's start about what happens and think why it's been happening. What happens is not exactly the way you describe it. Generally, a developer has an idea. I think there's a market for micro units in the Bronx. I'm just gonna be local. And I think I could build 3000 of them if I can get this piece of land. 
and I know the land costs me X dollars a foot. So now I'm going to call my friend Megan, the architect, and and going to say, you know, I really think I want to I want to build this. So could you just do an idea for me? And then Megan, who is a brilliant architect, is going to come up with not only something that is micro unit, but it's going to be an iconic architectural statement for that location in the Bronx. And then they're going to mutually fall in love with the design. And then they're going to go to a large general contractor and say, okay, what does this cost? And then, of course, not really much has happened other than a thought process. And then that price, no matter what it is, is going to not work in the development pro forma based on how much they're paying land. And then they're going to go back to the architects that it's really good, but you know, it's beautiful, but can you take a little bit of the undulation out? And then the architect's going to be unhappily sort of trying to find a more simplified solution for their beauty, uh, beautiful design. And then they go back to the, to the general contractor and say, okay, give me a price for this. Of course, nobody's really getting paid in this process very much, if anything. And then that process continues over and over and over again until, and now I'm being a little bit cynical, the general contractor says, you know what? Yeah, we can build it for that price because it hasn't been designed yet anyway, and you're not really pricing out anything. So then they go ahead and they start the full-on architectural design. Then they get it far enough along so that they can get more realistic pricing. They send it off to the general contractor to price it out or the construction manager or how, whoever it is managing it. And then, of course, it comes in at the wrong price and then the pricing <laughs> starts all over again. Eventually, you get to the end building. That's what we do over and over again. And, uh, you know, Einstein said, right? But, but Roger, is it that much worse for iconic? I mean, I mean, you can imagine certainly for an iconic office building, that's what happens or, you know, a big stadium or something. But if you're just building affordable housing in a suburb or stick built, you know, garden apartments, is it is that what's going on? Have you ever been into a uh, city planning meeting for a affordable housing building in New York? Same things happening. You know, you have us, you know, 14 architects that are interns at the, you know, at, at a housing and urban development. And, and they, you know, you spend all the time talking about whether the entryways shape is matching the entryway of the door and does that create a problem from the street view plane? So my answer to your question is to some extent that is happening. I guess what is created by the system that we've just discussed, all of the stakeholders are really on different sides of the table. So, so and, and you're all trying to accomplish something uh, at sort of opposite sides of the table and the alignment doesn't really happen until the end, when we all come to an agreement as to what it is we're exactly doing. That's but isn't the there some building. democracy in that whole process? I mean, you have an aesthetic, someone who's aesthetic, somebody who's cost sensitive and wants to, you know, build something for profit. You've got the planning board that wants to build something that involves community. Yep. You know, yep. many, many hands are, obviously, we are building communities and, and place making. So yep, don't you 100%. need all those people in the process? The answer is you absolutely do need all those people in the process. The question is, is what system do you want to use in order to manifest the end result? And, and, and in my view, and in sort of the view of, I think, many shifts in the industry, is that a, a design build effort where the developer comes in and says, I can't afford to pay more than $312 a foot for a fully finished building. And the, the architect says, here's our volume and our mass. And here's the program that the 
developer thinks works and and the and the and the general contractor says look we can do all of these things quite efficiently but we can't really do these things efficiently what happens if we build this product with this process in this way and meet all of those needs of the stakeholders rather than what you just said which is true it may be a democratic process but it's certainly not an efficient process and i don't i don't think necessarily yields better results um Mm-hmm. But I would argue that sometimes it, it doesn't yield as good results. So tell us, how should how does modular work? And is it working the way today, the way you would like it to work? Or is it uh, an evolution towards a more efficient process? Yeah, I think the world is in evolution. And certainly this industry is in, in evolution. And it is trying um, very hard. Um, in many ways, to disrupt itself, um, the amount of investment in construction technology, and you mentioned, you know, historically construction has the lowest amount of, you know, RNG and technology dollars of almost any industry. That, if you look at the deal pages of PitchBook today, you can see how many billions and billions of dollars are going into the idea because it is an inefficient. Uh, uh, process and needs disruption. One of the challenges is that the AC industry and certainly the construction side of that is really organized by construction trades, sort of something that goes back to the middle ages and sort of the gilded age of skilled tradesmen. And they are amazing. You know, they've built this country, but um, organizing um, a process by the trade divisions is inefficient. Okay. If anybody's ever renovated a bathroom, um, it's really inefficient. Uh, if you're building something in a factory, you organize by the most efficient way to get the project done or get that product built or et cetera. When you're, in, when, when you're on site, you're actually organizing by the, the electricians are coming in for this, the concrete guys are coming in sure, for that. And sure. then, so if you can think about taking something that is organized or chunked by by um, something that related to skilled trades that were created sort of long before we had even the government we have today and 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 fast forward that it's not super efficient uh there's much quicker ways to um to organize those skills uh in a way to create the built environment more efficiently more effectively using uh, the economies of process that manufacturing has for every industry and that uses it do you think that modular construction today has gone beyond that the perception that it's less aesthetically appealing or that it's a lower quality? Have, have we broken through that? Um, so, so I think that that is in process. I mean, I, I think if you look sort of, if you pan the world and you see what's going on, um, you know, full stack module. So, so 461 Dean Street that you mentioned was actually finished mm-hmm. in 2016, and it was the tallest modular building in the world. It is no longer the tallest modular building in the world. And um, there is now there are two buildings in uh, in the UK, uh, downtown London, actually quite beautiful, um, uh, that were built. At one is 38 stories, and one is 40 stories. And then there's two sets of buildings in Singapore. Uh, and and the majority of their multifamily building is being built um, volumetric or modularly at this point. And the first set of buildings are 40 stories tall. The the other ones that just got finished are 56 stories tall. And uh, in places where you have 
less, even less available skilled labor than we have than we have in the United States as compared to the need for housing. This is a, has become more of a necessity, but you're seeing, um, you're seeing, uh, you know, with the labor shortages even in the United States, we don't have enough manpower to build construction buildings the way we've been building them and get anywhere close to meeting the needs. Uh, you know, you listen to the news every day and you can talk to almost right. any town in Midtown USA and they're, they say now that the housing stock in that location is eight years away from getting caught up to, 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 to available, available housing. Yeah, no, I think there's no question. We all see the need. And it, I mean, especially if we're going to talk about affordable housing, there's a crisis in this country for affordable housing in major cities where land is expensive. Um, and there are some folks who've tried to solve the problem. No one has really done it effectively, certainly not at scale. Why not? What's the problem? So, so I mean, I think I'm going to answer that question in two parts. Uh, I think the question is, is how do you define affordable housing? So, you know, m most of the people we talk to today. Median income. Are, so that the people who yeah. can live there are firemen, you yeah. know, police attainable, attainable housing, attainable housing. Yeah. yeah. So, attainable so workforce housing. housing, attainable housing. You know, so, so the interesting thing is, is, you know, in the division of affordable housing, there's that which is subsidized affordable housing. And most many friends of mine who are in that business and do an incredible job, you know, the, the real estate doesn't actually gain any value over time, right? So there really are construction fees and management fees, and that's sort of how it's operated. So that's not the part we're talking about, but we're talking about attainable housing where you're buying land, the, the price of the land is high, the price of the construction is high, and you're trying to make it so that, you know, sort of a, you know, sort of working force families can afford to live there comfortably in a place that's close to where they work, uh, high quality, healthy homes, et cetera. And how do you do that? And one of the advantages uh, and challenges that, that a modular solution creates is that it asks you to find a way to take advantage of the economies of process that manufacturing has in it, which means that you have to have some level of repetition in your process. The one thing that is, everybody knows that in, you know, logically, but, but the reality is, is that the way we do construction today, and we talked about this earlier, is that we look at every piece of land like we've never built a building before. And we don't actually take advantage of everything we know about building. So for instance- So, so Roger, if you took Levittown, right? This repetitive, yep. or Peter Cooper Village or Stuyvesant Town, yep. Something yep. that looked like that, where you had 14 or 25 buildings, they're all the same 14 stories, they all have eight departments on the floor, they're, you know, maybe there's the same stack of one, two or three bedrooms. So you, so we have housing that looks like that. Yep. Could we build it today in a modular fashion? Oh, absolutely. And Better, by faster, the way, cheaper? Actually, yes. Well, so that's, I was getting there. But the, but the but the reality is is they, it doesn't even have to look like that. You can have all the buildings look different and still have them have so many elements that are the same uh, that that there's a value proposition creating that. The difference is that what you need to do is you need to incorporate the process of building something, and even if it's the pieces, if it's the walls, if it's the bathrooms, if it's the types of units, if it's the layouts, et cetera, the more that you repeat, the more economies of process you get, you get. In order to do that, you have to have the stakeholders on the same side of the table that I just said. So a developer saying, I wanna build 40 buildings like this. 
we, we want them all to look different. Some may be taller, some may be shorter, some may be wider, some may be, you know, in a constrained site, some may not, but we're basically using this one bedroom, this two bedroom, this three bedroom, and it'll vary by city a little bit. And we're gonna use basically this bathroom, we're gonna use that, and then we're ready to build all that. Once you start rolling that through the factory, the economies of process lower the labor costs, increase the productivity, predictability and quality quite effectively. However, if you say, I wanna try modular, like I wanna try a low carb diet, and you go in and you, you know, start a design for a building that's never been built before and try to build it modularly and save a lot of money and time, that first time you do it, it's not gonna do that because you're having to create all of those systems uh, that, that have not been reused or, re or and that's where the challenge in the industry is today because people are mm. focused on figuring out how to do that, but there hasn't been enough of the repetitive process to have data points to show those economies of process. Yeah, you need the economy to scale. You probably need a massive amount of capital to, you know, you need developers who are willing to say, okay, here's the pipeline and a massive amount of capital to build these things. So yeah, um, or, or at least at least a reasonable amount for sure. Um, and, mm -hmm. and and the money is going into that kind of housing, and the and the opportunity is there. So really, it is the stakeholders being focused on. We're going to take advantage of this. And we're going to take we're going to make the efforts to do that. And you, we are seeing more and more of that. So let's pivot to what you're doing in that space with full stack. Um, as I understand it, you spun out your business and became independent um, yep. from the Forest City umbrella. Um, yep. And you have a hundred thousand square foot factory in Brooklyn. Um, so yes, tell do. us a little bit about what the vision is for the business while you spun out, what it's like operating in yeah. probably the most expensive, one of the most expensive cities in the planet. So look, I, there's a, that's a, those are a lot of questions. So I'll try to answer them all. So the first one is that, um, so look, uh, I think um, I'm from Cleveland. I said, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, but I think New York is an amazing place because sort of it's the level of ingenuity and guts uh, and also the available labor pool. Uh, you know, most of my friends in the industry have a hard time getting people to come to work, uh, you know, no matter where they're located in New York. It's not that there isn't a challenge with hiring people, but they're there and they're all within a few miles. Uh, so there's an advantage to that. Um, you know, the Brooklyn Navy Yard has been a great place for us. Um, you know, it's uh, industry focused and they have a lot of support. Uh, so they've been uh, sort of amazing partners in this process. We are a design, manufacture, construct solution. So we try to provide all of what we just talked about um, in, in, in collaboration with architects, uh, you know, and general contractors, but as one system. So to the developer, it's one process, one person to blame, we call it, uh, solution. And we focus on, um, on mid to high rise multifamily buildings in dense urban environments. Uh, the things that allow attainable housing uh, specifically. We are also expanding uh, to the West Coast. We have a factory which uh, we're co-locating with one of our steel manufacturers in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so we're building a, a hotel in Sunnyvale, California right now. And we are building uh, some affordable housing here in New York. And um, we, are, we are working with several developers on creating a um, attainable housing platform um, to roll out both, both on the East and the West Coast. Using 461D as an example, um, yeah. 
how did it work from start to finish? Your client, your customer is a developer. Yep. The developer comes to you and says, I'd like to, you know, if this is, I own this site or I'm optioning, I've optioned this site. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to build uh, affordable housing. I need to build these, I need to build this number of units to make it economic. Who does the design? And then how did you make this, whatever you're doing in the factory, how did you make it efficient given that it was a one of a kind? Yeah. So it's not, so look, at the end of the day, we do have a system. Um, so our mid to high raise system has a whole bunch of things, uh, components that are that are systems that we utilize within our within our process. So every architect building a multifamily building has a set of parameters that they have to follow. You know, you have to have elevators. There has to be stairwells and egress. You have to have windows in the bedroom. You're you're going to need some bathrooms. So there's this whole list of parameters that you have to follow for design to work and be to code, you know, accessibility, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, so in the modular solution, we have a whole other set of parameters that we add on to that, which makes it a lot easier to, to, um, to organize uh, a solution meeting the program needs. So we have a structural system which allows us to build buildings. It's all steel, um, allows us to build buildings up to 45 stories in a non-seismic area and up to 20 stories in a in a in a in a in a seismic area and uh in a double loaded corridor situation um our system uh, it carries all of the I mean all of the structural moment connections required for the building to stand up so there's nothing in our building from whatever we sit on till the roof but the mods that we have and the facade that is installed in the factory and all of the finishes all the hallways all the stairwells all the elevator shafts um, we try to minimize the amount of work done on site, obviously hugely advantageous in a dense urban environment, and also much easier to calculate what's actually happening on site. Obviously safer, um, higher quality, more sustainable. Most of our designs are non-combustible. I, I, uh, I had a talk with a, a large development company the other day who has a new ESG division. I'm like, we are ESG. You know, it is, we're sustainable, <laughs> mostly minority workers. You know, it's a quality housing, you know, dense urban environment. Uh, you know, just check the boxes. Um, how, how much of what is actually happening in the factory is robot using robots or robotics versus yeah. uh, manual labor? There's not a lot of robotics yet. Um, so, so, so automation people who are super smart will tell you, um, that automation is a, is a continuum of process, right? So you start with sort of conventional construction with general instructions on how to build something. And you move that to something that is production drawings, which is showing precisely how something's going to get built and when, and then you take portions of that and you perhaps automate them, say, by cutting them or organizing them or controlling the parts. And then you take that and you create subsystems that are, crea- that, that are created. All those are levels of automation. When you get to the end of levels of automation where you can have humans without much skill follow all the directions and everything goes together precisely as it should, meaning you've taken the skill side of it and moved it into a process side sort of manufacturing the next step from that is can you roboticize that process and is there value to that or 
is the automation by creating uh, uh, um, embedded assemblies of a process enough automation to make it efficient. And that's, and that's a, a constant sort of evolution. Um, when you get, if you don't know how to do something, you're never going to be able to teach a robot how to do it. So uh, <laughs> that's sort of snarky, but it's, that's a fact. So, yeah. How long did it take to build 461 Dean? It was really two years, but there was a, there was a disruption between it. There was a management change. Yeah, this was in conjunction with Four City. So uh, there was a management change. Uh, and so it was a collaboration actually originally with Skanska uh, and then Four City and, uh, and us uh, bought Skanska out of that. And uh, they fought for a long while. And then, uh, and then we, we bought uh, full stack from Four City, finished it. And then uh, interesting enough, Skanska, who, who <laughs> we were fighting with at the time, just uh, we were very proud. They just gave us a job at uh, at LaGuardia to build a to build a little piece of uh, build a piece of the airport. So, um, oh, that's so awesome! Obviously, they yeah. So, <laughs> if you fought with somebody and they all of a sudden give you a job, uh, you know that there's a there's something of value to what you've done. Other than the partners and personalities, what were the biggest challenges in at four sixty one? Honestly, those were the problems. I, you know, the interesting thing is, is our system is evolved from there, you know, three to five fold. Like there's been, the nice thing about manufacturing is every time you do something, you say, well, did I do that well, or can I do it better? Uh, that's the advantage of doing something in a factory, but the system is still incredible. It, it, the, it's managed right now by Graystar and, you know, it's a great building. So we learned some things about, uh, you know, some materiality and how they change and some adjustment mechanisms, uh, you know, that need to be built into the system that we didn't really have when we started. And uh, we learned some things about um, keeping the mods, uh, you know, uh, from being exposed to the elements while they're being constructed. I mean, there's not not big things. <laughs> the, the reality is, is every Did time I go in that- Did you use specially building, trained people? Or do you have to specially train your assemblies group or could any contractor be hired to do this well we don't use any oh to put it in the fact in the field you mean or in the factory when yes once you're out of the factory in the field how did, yeah, how it's did that not work super complicated the hardest part of doing the stuff on site is being able to scope it uh, so that you don't have scope overlap the hardest thing is not to do not to have more work in your scope than actually happens because at the end of the day what you're doing on site is basically an erector set. Um, you know, it's a putting a bunch of pieces together, literally that we that we cut in the factory, um, both structurally, mechanically, electrically, and plumbing wise. And then the architectural finishes in the hallway are done on site because that's where all of the vertical and horizontal connections happen. Um, but it is, uh, you know, the popular mechanics thing for somebody who grew up as a pretty geeky, it was pretty exciting. And, and I think about that um, sort of whenever we build a building, it literally is how do we make it as easy to put together as possible so that it goes up efficiently and effectively. So it's not, it's really not rocket science. Uh, the planning is rocket science, but the, but the actual installation of it on site is pretty simple. And what's the, what are the dollar and cents implications of it? Did it cost you less building modular than it would have if you were building traditional? And did it take more or less time? Well, it definitely takes less time uh, and, and significantly less time from a design and construct perspective, you know, somewhere in the 30% range, even on the outset. 
the cost implications are more related to what I mentioned earlier, which is how much of the economies of process have you implemented? Have you done this stuff before? Because uh, A, your purchasing power for that and also the labor. So manufacturing 101 says every time you do something, you do it 10% more efficiently until some diminishing uh, marginal product, you know, increased productivity. So the first time you do it, you're probably somewhere in the 50% productive range. So think about every building we're building in the United States, we're probably 50% productive in building it at the best because it's the first time they're doing that. And then you increase 10%, forgetting automation, you increase about 10% per time up to some level of efficiency. So if you create enough repetitiveness, um, and memory on how to build those things, there's significant cost uh, decreases in uh, on the labor side and certainly some on the material side because the waste obviously is significantly less. So I think the answer to my question was this building maybe wasn't necessarily more cost effective, but if we did it five times, it would be significantly less. Even even three, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and for in terms of the rent up, either in terms of rent that, that they were able to achieve or the pacing of Lisa, did it have an impact yeah. um, on how the building was perceived in the market? It went incredibly quickly. And now it's literally, I don't think they have two apartments vacant right now. It's half affordable, a half market. Um, and I, I go see it often because, you know, people, and, and I can off, often not even get into an apartment to look at it because there's not one empty. <laughs> Are there any particular maintenance issues for modular uh, specific buildings? Well, the good news about what we do is we actually build from as-built drawings. So our production drawings are how the building is built precisely to a quarter of an inch tolerance. So in the event that you have anything you ever want to do, be it maintenance or actually repositioning of a building or changing the shape or the types of units there are, you just have to look at the model. You know where every pipe, where every wire is, and uh, and how and how to adjust it. And then, of course, depending on the developer, we we can put in all kinds of building management, smart technology, you know, whatever it is that they like to increase the efficiency and operation of the business, of the building. You mentioned a bunch of other projects that you're that you're working on now. Are you selective on the next projects that you take on, or are you? you know, looking for as many projects as you can. How are you thinking about the growth of the business? Uh, somewhere in between. Look, we believe, uh, we believe uh, 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 exactly what I said, which is that the economies of process of doing um, similar things repetitively is where the value proposition is for the industry. Your factory or any factory wants to be busy in order to be profitable. It's, it's way more overhead than most development companies, right? So so you need to have that. So the idea of aligning those two uh, gives you the opportunity, you know, sort of a development program uh, and a factory to build it allows you to mitigate the downside risks both in the factory and from a developer's perspective, because you can predict the cost, you can predict the time. Um, and like I said, over the repetitive process, you can actually sort of amp up your IRR from a development perspective because you get early, you know, earlier earlier delivery of the product and, you know, controlled costs uh, and, and diminished costs as the time goes on. So after, say, three buildings or, you know, whatever the right number is, are you, how much, what percentage reduction in construction costs are you thinking about? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 
more three buildings you should be if three buildings if you are you should be assuming that steel doesn't do what it just did in the last year um uh it, you should be in the 15 to 10 to 15 percent at a minimum and potentially um greater so i think if you if you look at the the if you, you should be able to build design and build 50 percent faster than conventionally and you should be able to you should be able to save somewhere between against original costs so forgetting cost overruns and all those other things that nobody ever wants to report um you should be able to deliver against sort of original conventional costs somewhere between 10 and 15 percent savings sort of pushing to 20. you mentioned you're doing something i think on the west coast so would you use your brooklyn factory for that and transport no. the items or you'll will no. you build a factory close to the project yeah, I think I said so. We we're co-located in Portland uh, for a West Coast presence. So we are building uh, uh, two projects there now, um, and uh, one of them is is going to start uh, probably beginning of the year. So we're uh, already been approved by the state of California and is in for local permits. Um, and uh, we're building the prototype for that project um, to be viewed in October. So uh, so that's for the West Coast, and then. Um, the East Coast, pretty much, you know, Boston to Boston to DC here, uh, you know, sort of is our market um, locally from New York. So you've talked about this business is, you know, it's been modular's been going on for 50 years, but it's still somewhat nascent in terms of the actual buildings we can point to that were built modularly. You also mentioned PitchBook and all the billions of dollars that are, you know, venture venture capital money that's that's looking for. Um, looking for investors what what's your competition look like um, and what do you think the industry how many players are there in your space and what do you think this business will look like in a few years time yeah so um it's a great question so so my answer to your question is you know we are sort of all steel mid to high rise focused and there are not many players in that market yet um there were a few skender uh, sadly, uh, went out of business, and uh, Rad Urban, uh, you know, uh, also I know very well, also went out of business, partially uh, from my perspective because of the lack of repetitive business sort of built into that program. But one of the things I think we need to do, and I don't know how this happens, is is to rethink the name modular because modular is ill-defined. Um, so, uh, and in in Singapore. We what we do in our factory is a fully volumetric solution where we build, as I explained, most everything in the factory. And in Singapore, they call that pre-finished, prefabricated volumetric construction, PPVC. Complete explanation of exactly what it is. Um, and there are some players in the space, in the metal space or in the steel space or something taller, there are not many. Then there are a number of other players who build um, componentized sub-assemblies panelized systems, panelized mechanical systems, et cetera. People like Prescient who now have five, I don't know if they have nine factories, uh, but, um, and, and they're growing significantly. Then there are a whole bunch of wood volumetric manufacturers who in my opinion are in a mature industry because they've been busy for a long time. They're building hundreds of buildings. Um, there must've been 3000 mods set last year, maybe four. Um, uh, um, uh, sort of on the wood under five story world. And then there's all of this panelized construction, which is an incredibly immature in industry that many call modular, both in the in the 
residential space and then companies like dirt do it right this time uh in the in the in the uh commercial space which is growing uh always so i guess my answer to your question is and then there are tons of mechanical companies that are doing mechanical sub assemblies uh you know multi-trade racks um you know gas walls for hospitals you know so so the industry has all of these sub uh, off-site industries and so once we define them, I can sort of tell you what I think is happening with them. Some of them are very mature and some of them are sort of more nascent. So, so the volumetric wood stuff is, a, I think, a mature industry at this point. It is, there are 15 companies that are doing significant amount of work right now. Um, in our space, not so much, but it's coming. Uh, you know, there's, there's a number of people entering, entering the space right now. So. Um. Do you want to share with us where you think what you think you'll look like in three years as a business? Yeah, I was going to say you were getting kind of personal. What I'm going to look like in three years? Uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so you, you you know we what is full stack going to look like in three years? Yeah, so uh, so we we believe um, uh, you know we're very. But excited let's get to be personal. Actually, that might be more interesting. Should we? <laughs> it might be. It might be. Look, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're opening another factory. We believe that there's room to create ultimately a system, a full stack system to design and manufacture and construct multifamily buildings, um, whether that be here in the United States or uh, elsewhere. And our goal and hope is to create the support systems uh, in order to be able to do that. And so, um, and so that's where we see ourselves five years from now, three years from now, you know, we'll probably be opening our third factory either in the Sun Belt or in the Midwest, uh, and we'll be, you know, sort of perfecting the system so that we can, so that we can spin it out and get the 10x returns that every construction tech company expects. <laughs> well, I wish you every success and lots of luck in doing that. Um, in closing, I, I want to ask you, Roger, a question that I'm always curious about, um, mentorship. Uh, who've been the most important mentors to you in your career? What did you learn from them? Certainly my grandfather, uh, you know, was my best friend, sort of a confidant and leader and sort of drove a lot of what I've done in my life. Um, my wife has taught me more than, uh, than almost anybody could. She's an incredible business person and leader, lots of family. Uh, and, uh, and, I have just been incredibly lucky to, you know, sort of work at Forest City for 15 years and interface with so many incredibly intelligent, you know, sort of forward-thinking people who who were sort of uh, the 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 whole thought growing up in Cleveland about, you know, if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. It was an amazing sort of uh, introduction in you know in the early 2000s to get exposed to people who really affect uh, the world significantly. Well, that's a great answer. And you certainly had great lineage, family and professionally. Uh, wishing you. you every success. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, okay. look forward to continuing to follow uh, the success of your business. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Thanks so much. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. Thanks to Roger for his insight into modular construction. As always, thanks to Nancy for hosting. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, 
please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time.